All right. Welcome, everybody. Glad you're here this evening. This is the uh, last session on, I don't even know, what have we been calling this? God's program. That's what we've been calling it. God's program. Where we started out talking about hermeneutics, which is uh, really important to talk about hermeneutics, how we read the Bible. And then we went into looking at, uh, very important, right, Colby? Yes, he's amening me. Uh, And then we went into uh, the covenants, the biblical covenants, how we understand the Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, new covenant, and some other ones. I handed these out along the way. Anybody need one of these? Lanny needs one. Anybody else? Okay. I think the rest of you should have gotten one. There you go. Jim, you already got one of these. You, you, you set it next to your bed and read it every night. <laughs> so um, tonight is just kind of a review and a Q&A time. And uh, I want to save those for the second half of the class. For now, I think what I want to do is um, show you a, a video by a scholar that I really uh, appreciate reading. And he started doing videos too. <clears throat> now he is a scholar. So he's not the most entertaining person in the world, okay? <laughs> You've been warned. I had some evening coffee today, so I don't uh, need to be perked up. You might need to be, maybe if you've got a mint or just slap yourself or whatever. Uh, but he does a, a good job of explaining uh, the, the view that we teach here at this church, okay? Now, we've um, gone through and talked about hermeneutics and covenants, and we haven't really talked about dispensations. Have you noticed that? We haven't used that word really. We haven't defined what a dispensation is or uh, tried to name them. And that's for good reason. Uh, It's not because, you know, that's a totally worthless thing to do, but it's because that's not the focus of the Bible. The Bible doesn't name dispensations. The Bible names covenants, okay? And so we want to study the covenants and learn the covenants. But what he's going to be uh, teaching here on this video is the, the... theology that can be called dispensationalism, okay? And so I want him to uh, explain that. It's going to be about 20 minutes. And as you're watching it, jot down thoughts, questions that you have, and we can discuss afterwards or, uh, or anything that you've thought of along the way that would be helpful to have answered here tonight. Happy to do that or attempt to do that. So I think that's the direction we'll go now. I'll pray, and then we will uh, play that video, and uh, hopefully that'll be helpful. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time together, the, the children of this church. Thank you that we got to hear their sweet voices of uh, just singing these truths that they've been learning about you, that you are king, that you are in control. There is only one God. You are him, and we are your sheep, the sheep of your pasture. We are, we are creatures, and we owe you our lives. God, help us to uh, steward these children well, that we would lead them in faith, uh, thank you so much for their energy and for their desire to, to be here with one another and to be here uh, to study your word and to learn more about you. Help us to have that same kind of zeal. Help us to have the same kind of energy as we consider what it is you've revealed to us and how you have designed history to go where all this is headed. Help us to have our thinking caps on tonight and to be ready to have some good discussion. God, we love you and thank you so much for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I may need to go play it. <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah, it just needs to be pulled over. Now, at this point, I wanted to discuss more of how uh, I, I view things. Oh, Tyler. There we go. Now, at this point, I wanted to discuss more of how I view things as one who's studied this issue and read various uh, dispensational theologians. I wanted to address the issue of hermeneutics, Bible interpretation, the issue of Jesus's role, um, or at least uh, how dispensationalism perceives Jesus's role in all of this, and then theological beliefs. So the first thing is the hermeneutics of dispensationalism. I think this came through somewhat from what we've seen earlier with Ryrie and Feinberg and other things we've discussed is that uh, dispensationalism believes that we should use a consistent literal hermeneutic to all passages of scripture. That also involves a grammatical historical hermeneutic where we're taking um, into account the grammar and the history and the culture and the genre and all these things that contribute to understanding 
what the divinely inspired authors of scripture meant by what they wrote. And that even includes uh, the Old Testament. So dispensationalists believe that all passages of scripture are inspired by God and they all make their contributions to the Bible storyline. And that even includes the Old Testament. And that even includes Old Testament prophetic sections. So dispensationalists, they don't look at the Old Testament and say, well, all of that is going to get transcended or transformed or spiritualized or typologized when you get to the New Testament. Uh, They're going to say, actually, there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that literally need to be fulfilled if they haven't been fulfilled yet. And that does include Old Testament prophetic passages, because if you look at those passages, there's a lot about Israel in there. (laughs) There's a lot about the land of Israel and physical blessings and promises concerning nations and restoration of creation and all those, all those kinds of things. So uh, dispensational say, you know, we, we have to be literal with those things as well. But in a nutshell, it's really about trying to be consistent uh, with what the Bible is saying, understanding that since God inspired it all, that all of it harmonizes, all of it works together, and that there's great continuity as revel- uh, with, uh, between earlier revelation and later uh, revelation. So, uh, and again, here, just reaffirming this, that, you know, this would be consistent with the concept of great continuity, uh, that dispensationalists believe that the Old Testament expectations concerning Israel and Gentiles and everything else, spiritual and physical blessings, those have to be fulfilled literally either at the first coming of Christ or in connection with the second coming. So we could say that dispensationalism on when it comes to Old Testament expectation and New Testament fulfillment, there's a continuity of expectation of literal fulfillment. Now, the next area is very important, and that has to deal with the issue of Jesus, uh, his role, and, and how dispensationalism perceives Jesus and his role. Uh, sometimes dispensationalists are accused of, well, you talk so much about Israel that you're not giving glory to Jesus. And we don't believe that that is, that is a correct assessment. Uh, we do believe that Jesus is at the center of God's kingdom program, uh, that he is the last Adam. He is the ultimate seed of Abraham. He's the ultimate son of David. He's the ultimate king. He is the ultimate true uh, Israelite. Uh, he is the ultimate priest. He is the one who establishes the new covenant, and then on and on and on. And so all of history is, is, is centered and linked and points to the significance of the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, and that there would be no fulfillment of the scripture without him. All the promises are indeed yes in him. Uh, And so uh, Jesus is central to everything. Now, the fact that the Bible also talks about other things like Israel and nations and the earth and land and all those kinds of things, those things are important too. So Uh, We don't say, well, those things aren't important anymore because of Jesus, but we say Jesus is at the center of all of this, and because of him, everything will be fulfilled. Now, when it comes to the issue of Jesus's relationship to Israel, we do affirm Jesus is true Israel. He is the ultimate Israelite, but this doesn't mean the non-significance of the nation Israel, as a lot of people think, but it does mean, as Isaiah 49 verses 3 to 6 state, that because of the ultimate servant of Israel, who we now know as Jesus, there will be a restoration of Israel as a corporate entity and the blessing of the Gentiles. So Jesus's relationship to Israel is not that of transcender of Israel to make a new spiritual Israel. He's the, he's the head of Israel who saves the corporate entity and also blesses the world. And so that's very important to dispensationalism. Um, And therefore, Jesus does not make national Israel irrelevant uh, in God's purposes. Uh, Another thing concerning Jesus that we do want to mention is dispensationalists do believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But we don't mean it like some others mean it. Because I think everybody, if you're a Christian, you're going to say Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. But not everybody means the same thing by that. Some seem to take more, sometimes, oftentimes, the non-dispensational view. Uh, Jesus, like, he, he absorbs uh, the predictions of the Old Testament. I even read one author who said Jesus makes Old Testament prophecies vanish in him. So, uh, allegedly, 
there can be specific predictions concerning certain entities and things and events, but that kind of vanishes into Christ. The dispensational view is that Jesus does fulfill the Old Testament, but he's the means of fulfillment. In other words, he takes it upon himself to make sure everything that the scripture promises happens. So he doesn't spiritualize the promises of the Abrahamic and the Davidic and the new covenants, but he makes sure they all come together in all their dimensions, physically, spiritually, nationally, internationally. And so uh, he's the, he's the means of fulfillment, not, not the one who makes those promises uh, uh, vanish. Now we want to come to the issue of primary theological beliefs of dispensationalism. And so here we're going to talk about uh, seven uh key beliefs. And I, I do want to be clear here that when we talk about these primary theological beliefs of dispensationalism, we're not saying that only dispensationalists hold these, but these are very important to the dispensational understanding of the Bible storyline from Genesis through Revelation. So I, I think it's fair to say dispensationalists affirm these beliefs, but it doesn't mean that there can't be others who might believe in some of these as well but they're very important to the Bible storyline. And, and also these things that I'm mentioning here is not a statement of everything dispensationalism believes, but they're more of uh, kind of like the core essential beliefs that are linked with dispensational theology. And so I mentioned these here. Now, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna read the list here because we're actually going to mention them as we move along here, but there are seven primary theological beliefs of dispensationalism. The first one being is that dispensationalism believes in the literal fulfillment of all aspects of what we could call the covenants of promise, the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the new. These are eternal, unconditional covenants that can be conditional elements within them, but they're, they're covenants that God takes upon himself to fulfill. And so the point that I'm making here is that dispensationalism acknowledges the great significance of salvation through faith that's linked with the covenants. You know, in Genesis 15, connected with the Abrahamic covenant, says that, you know, Abram believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a great statement of salvation through faith alone, which Paul reaffirms in Romans 4. And so, but as you read the details of the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the new covenants, there's, there's dozens of promises and some of them involve spiritual blessings and salvation, but some of them involve things like Israel, the land of Israel, nations, physical blessings, agricultural blessings, restoration of earth, harmony in creation. So the promises are very multidimensional, which fits with the fact that creation is very multidimensional. I mean, you read Genesis 1 to 2, and there, there's, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of, uh, of things that are associated with God's creation. Uh, you know, you read uh, on in Genesis, you read about the institution of culture, uh, and then you also read about nations in Genesis uh, 10 to 11. So uh, we, could, we could say a lot more on this, but I just want to affirm that dispensationalism understands that there's more than just salvation blessings associated with the covenants of promise. And we want to understand them in all their dimensions and believe that God through Christ is going to fulfill all the dimensions of the covenants of promise. And then secondly, dispensationalism believes in the continuing significance of ethnic national Israel. Uh, in other words, you know, the corporate entity, the ethnic national territorial entity of Israel that was significant in the Old Testament remains significant, even though Israel's in unbelief and will be significant in the future. So when Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel will be saved, that refers to the corporate entity. And earlier in Romans 11, 12 to 15, Paul makes the point that when Israel's fullness comes about, there's going to be even greater blessings uh, to the world. So one thing we have to understand is when dispensationalists talk about the significance of national Israel, it's also connected with what God is doing for the whole earth and other nations and ethnicities. So it's not like national Israel gets all these great blessings and then everybody else gets nothing, or everybody else has to sit on a cloud while Israel enjoys, you know, physical earthly blessings. That, that's not the case. But the main point that we're making here is that um, Israel as a corporate national entity remains significant, and that even includes the future. Another belief, a key belief of dispensationalism is that the church is a New Testament entity. 
Uh, there's always been a people of God. I mean, you can go very deep back into Genesis and in the Old Testament. There's always been people who've believed, you know, have expressed faith in the God of the Bible and have been saved. But there's something unique about the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, again, we believe he is eternal, eternal God, but his arrival as the son of David, as the Messiah, as the servant, uh, the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, and the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit that he brings as poured out in Acts chapter 2 that those ingredients there of the church, the arrival of the Messiah and the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit that the Messiah brings, that's really what makes the church the church. Now, of course, there's going to be a corporate aspect and you know, believing Jews and Gentiles as they believe in Jesus, they're united with him, then there ends up being spiritual gifts and spiritual blessings and those things. But the things that really make the church, the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, his suffering servant ministry, and the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, those weren't there in the Old Testament. And so you can't just say the people of God equals the church. There's something unique and special about the arrival of Jesus that makes the church what it is. So therefore, the church is a uh, New Testament entity, according to dispensationalism. And then number four, dispensationalism believes that there is a distinction between Israel and the church, now, they may be closely connected historically, and there's going to be some similarities. There's going to be language, people of God language used of Israel in the Old Testament that will be used of the church. But Israel is, a, is an ethnic, national, corporate, territorial entity. And the church is saved Jews and Gentiles in the Messiah in this age that experienced the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible still teaches a future for ethnic, uh, national Israel. So therefore, as the church arrives, there's still the belief that Israel as a national entity still is significant. So you can't just say the church is the new Israel because the, the Bible doesn't teach that. So dispensationalism rejects supersessionism or replacement theology or fulfillment theology, whatever you want to call it. Really, the, the title isn't that important. Um, but that view, supersessionism, is the belief that national Israel ceases to be significant as a corporate entity because of Jesus and the church, which redefine what Israel is. And so um, that's not the case. Uh, so dispensationalism uh, does not believe in supersessionism. Uh, it believes in all the great blessings that is occurring for the church and Jews and Gentiles uh, as they believe now. But there is coming a day where Jesus is coming to rule the nations. <laughs> he's going to rule Israel. He's going to, he, he's going to save and restore Israel. And Israel is going to be involved with the blessings of the nations during that particular time. So anyway, uh, dispensationalism is very strong that there is a distinction between Israel and the church. And then number five, dispensationalism affirms futurism. Now, I don't know if, you, if you've heard this or not, but futurism would be the belief that there are major passages of scripture that have not been fulfilled yet in history, but they will be in the future, particularly Daniel's 70th week as discussed in Daniel 9, 27. Uh, there's major parts of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke 21 and even Mark 13 that still need to be fulfilled. Uh, when it comes to Revelation chapter 6 with the unfolding of the seals, the trumpets, and the bull judgments which lead to the second coming of Christ, dispensationalists are futurist in the sense that they believe these passages and events still await future fulfillment. And that would differ with preterists who would see many of these things as fulfilled in the first century AD, or historicists who see um, these sorts of passages being fulfilled continually throughout the history of the, this age, um, or idealists who would say you know, these, these passages aren't really about timing of fulfillment. They're more of general principles like God wins and we need to be faithful. So I just wanted to mention that, that futurism is closely related to dispensationalism because there are significant prophetic events that still need to occur. And then sixth, another uh, key belief of dispensationalism is premillennialism, which believes that we are not in the millennium today and that you need the second coming of Jesus to earth to bring the millennium, which is an earthly kingdom of a thousand years or around a thousand years. So 
premillennialism views Jesus's millennial messianic kingdom as future. Now, I want to be clear here, just because, you know, not everybody who believes in premillennialism is a dispensationalist, but all dispensationalists believe in premillennialism. They believe uh, that there is a coming millennial kingdom, which is discussed in Revelation uh, chapter 20, and that that's going to be a period where you see all aspects of the covenants of the promise come to full fruition, Abrahamic, Davidic, and new. Yes, there are significant fulfillments of certain things of the Abrahamic, Davidic, and new, particularly spiritual blessings of the covenants. But in the coming millennial kingdom where Jesus is reigning on earth, you'll see a full fulfillment of, of, of all the covenants of promise at that particular time. And dispensationalists believe that it's during the millennial kingdom that comes after the second coming of Christ that the, the mandate given to man in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 to rule and subdue the earth will be, complete, will be fulfilled as it should be. And then after that, there's the entering into the eternal state uh, after uh, the direct reign of Jesus, the Messiah, where he fulfills the role that Adam failed with. Remember, Adam was tasked to rule from and over the earth. He failed. Jesus will rule from and over the earth, succeed. Those who are his saints succeed with him because they're united to him. And then there will be a transition to uh, the eternal state. And then seventh, another belief of dispensationalism is the significance of geopolitical nations. And that even includes the future. So I think for oftentimes for church history, you know, there's, there's these passages in the Bible um, and oftentimes in the Isaiah passages, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, others where it talks about nations, Isaiah 19 brings up Egypt and Assyria. Uh, you know, the nations are promised that they're going to have some blessings, you know, in the kingdom too, but oftentimes those have been spiritualized to, you know, to the church. And, you know, it is true. There are, uh, there is salvation going to Gentiles in this age, you know, praise the Lord for that. But the Bible also predicts in the kingdom times, there's going to be literal, in addition to Israel, other nations. Like if you read Isaiah 19, 16 to 25, it talks about Egypt is going to be saved. Egypt is going to, some of the cities of Egypt are going to speak Hebrew. Um, they're going to build a monument for the Lord in the land of Egypt. Assyria is going to be involved with worshiping the Lord. They're going to build a highway with Egypt that's involved with the worship of the God of the Bible. So Zechariah 14 talks about the role of Egypt uh, in a coming kingdom as well after the second coming of Christ. So, um, and also if you read uh, Revelation 20 through 22, there, the nations, nations, nations keep getting mentioned. Uh, Revelation 21 verses 24 to 26 say the nations and their kings will bring their glory, which is their cultural contributions into the new Jerusalem. So anyway, what dispensationalism is affirming is that not only is national Israel significant uh, in God's future purposes, but so too are other nations. Because when uh, the Messiah reigns, there's going to be blessings to all nations, all people groups. And it appears that that, that carries over also into the eternal state uh, as, as well. So now what I have here, I won't go through these all again, but this is just kind of a, a relisting of the summary of, of the theological beliefs uh, that we've uh, just, just mentioned. So anyway, we've come to the end of, of that presentation. Again, I understand we covered a lot. We didn't go into much detail on a lot of things, but this was a survey. This was a summary of the key beliefs. So hopefully uh, that has been helpful to you. And thanks for watching. Hey. <clears throat> All right. Well, I want to give you a, a short little quiz on what you just heard. <laughs> And then look at a couple Bible passages, then open it up for questions. So uh, he gave basically three key uh, distinctives of dispensationalism, this theological view. And it started with the hermeneutic. He spent a lot of time on the third point where he had seven subpoints. But he started with the hermeneutic or the way we interpret Scripture. What are just a couple of the rules for us as we interpret Scripture that we look to follow? as faithful readers of the Word of God? What are some rules? Is it, are there rules? And if there are, what are they? Okay. Okay, so consistency with the uh, literal aspect. Yeah, but taking into account, of course, the historical and grammatical aspects. Good, good. Yeah, consistency is what's really important with this view that makes it different. 
where an Old Testament prophetic passage is going to be interpreted with the same hermeneutic as a New Testament prophetic passage, for example. So the same hermeneutic in both. The second point he made was the role of Jesus. What's the role of Jesus in this view? What are some good things you can say about Jesus? Last Adam, good. Which means he is uh, going to fulfill what Adam failed at doing, right? Um, And that's a, a pretty grand thing because Adam was told to subdue the entire earth. So pretty amazing when we think about Jesus is going to fulfill that. What else? Yeah. In fact, he's the king, right? Yeah, he's the one who's going to be ruling and reigning, sitting on the throne of David, isn't he? Really important. What else about the role of Jesus? Good. Yeah, ultimate seed, the ultimate priest, right? Um, yeah, he is the fulfiller of all things. Will, will anything in God's program be fulfilled apart from Jesus Christ? Right. Good job. Okay. Very, very important. And then at the end there, that's where he spent the most time, some of the theological distinctives. So let me just ask you about a couple. What about the role of Israel in the church? The role of Israel and the role of the church. Uh, maybe not role, but definition. We'll start there. How are they different? Okay, good. So what, what is Israel? How would we define Israel in a basic way? A nation. That's a great place to start, right? A, a nation, meaning they're like, there's their territorial boundaries. God gave them physical boundaries on a plot of land. Um, there's a physical aspect to Israel. They are descendants of who? Let's get more specific. Uh, of Jacob. Because his name was changed to Israel, wasn't it? He's the one who had the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes. Now, what about the church? So that's Israel. Now, what about the church? How would we define the church? Okay, so new covenant related, not not Israel. Yeah, (laughs) sure. Uh, um, Yeah. What is a circle? Not a triangle, right? Uh, So, yeah, it's, um, so the church is, now I'm forgetting the what he said. Oh, new covenant related. Yeah, related to the new covenant. When Jesus said, this is the new covenant of my blood, he was introducing something, wasn't he? This was like a new chapter here, new era that was, that was beginning. And the church does not exist apart from that new covenant of Jesus' blood. Very true. Yep. Yep. What about this uh, physical aspect or national aspect? How is it different with the church? International. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? That's a phrase that's in the Bible. It's a phrase we like to use. That's, of course, different than Israel. Um, Do we have a plot of land that God has given us? No, we don't. Yeah, right. We are, uh, we're looking forward to that city uh, whose foundations are in heaven, right? We are looking forward to that, okay? Anything else definitionally between the two? Right. Yes, there's uh, an aspect where we are called sons of Abraham, but that, of course, is a, a spiritual thing. We are sons of Abraham in that we are believers. So we are like Abraham, the believer. We are of Abraham. We are the seed of Abraham. We are children of Abraham because we have faith as Abraham did. But we are not the ethnic descendants of Jacob, are we? Some of us might be, who knows, uh, but, but uh, that, we, that we know of in here, I think we would all claim to be Gentiles, wouldn't we? Yes. Yes, that's right, because right now it's the, the church that the Lord Jesus is building, and in this church, there is neither Jew nor Greek, right? So that's it. Uh, Tyler, you started getting to the role when you said Israel is linked to the new covenant also. The church is linked to the new covenant, but so is Israel. How are those roles different in the way that we're linked to the new covenant?
Mm-hmm. What about the future for Israel with the new covenant? Yeah, because the, uh, the direction that we don't go is, okay, God made this promise to Israel, and then we came along, and now we are partaking. Uh, there are different ways to articulate this. You can either say we are partakers of the new covenant, or we are partaking of new covenant blessings. Uh, but we're, we're partaking, but we're not saying that means we replace Israel in that covenant promise that God made. Okay, we're, we're saying God made that covenant promise to ethnic national Israel, and He's going to make good on that promise. In the meantime, here we are, a new entity in, you know, that was started with Jesus' blood, the, the new covenant of His blood, and at Pentecost, the church began. Here we are, and we get to partake. Uh, but that does not mean we are subbed in for Israel, and that doesn't mean uh, that we go back to the Old Testament and say, every time when God was saying Israel, all along He meant us. That's not it either. Uh, this is a mystery we're living in. The church is a mystery. That's what the New Testament says, that we are the mysterious work of God, meaning we weren't talked about in the Old Testament. Ephesians chapter 3, this is how Paul talks about this. It's a, it's a new work of God, the church is. So as we think about the future then, uh, just to sum up, as he mentioned, we are premillennial. We believe that Tyler covered this last week. We believe that Jesus comes back before the millennium begins, and it will be a literal thousand-year millennium. There will be a literal, physical, explicit kingdom where Jesus rules with a rod of iron from Jerusalem. We believe all that's going to happen. Uh, that, that is not to be interpreted as allegory or in a spiritual sense, but that He truly will rule with a rod of iron and the nations will obey. He will uh, fulfill the mandate to subdue the earth. He will be the undisputed King of kings and Lord of lords. In that day, there will be no opportunity for anybody to say, yeah, I'm not sure about that Jesus stuff, as they do now. When he returns, there will be no doubt that he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and he will, he will subdue the earth. Um, he did not get into, in the part of the video I showed you, the first part of the video, he got into this. Uh, we also believe in a pre-tribulational catching up of the church. Before the time of tribulation on the face of the earth, we believe God uh, will gather up his, the bride of Christ, that the church will be gathered together with Jesus in the clouds. In fact, the promise of Jesus in John 14 is that he would gather us to himself and that we would go to the Father's house with him, the place that he was preparing for us when he left this earth after his first coming. We will go there and there will be a time of Jacob's trouble on the face of the earth. That's Israel, Jacob. It'll be time of Israel's trouble on the face of the earth. They will especially endure the wrath of God, and yet some of them will be saved. All who remain alive, all will be saved. And then we return with Jesus. When the second coming is spoken of, it talks about Jesus returning with his saints. That'll be us. We return with Jesus, and then we enter into that literal thousand-year period. So that's what we see for the future. Okay? On that, thoughts? Kind of briefly, because I want to show. One, I want to go to one passage and then open up for all kinds of questions. Renee, yeah, we will judge angels. We will judge the earth. First uh, Corinthians six. It says we will judge the earth, um, and and there's a element too. Yes, correct. Yeah, it even says. Uh, yes, uh, in in fact, it says. Uh, that we will uh, judge, well, Jesus to his 12 disciples at least in Matthew 19, 28, which is a fascinating passage, that section of 27 to 30, Matthew 19, 27 to 30, uh, that has a lot of implications for the future kingdom. They will be judging the tribes of Israel, it says, which is very interesting. He, d- he doesn't go into detail. He says, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's a, and he also doesn't go into detail, um, Paul doesn't go into detail in 1 Corinthians 6 where it says we will judge angels. What, what on earth does that mean? Because angels don't sin. Well, it's, it's an aspect of our reigning with Christ, yes. It's, our, it's an aspect of our future reign. So Paul says we will, which means it's future, and uh, it has to do with reigning because we're judging. Right now we're a little while lower than the angels like Jesus was made in his first coming. Later we will be over the angels. So there's a, a shift that happens in the future where we will be reigning with him. Also, 2 Timothy 2.12, it says we will reign with him. Revelation 1, he has made us uh, priests to God to reign with him, uh, that we'd be a kingdom. 
And so there's a ruling and reigning aspect. There's a bit of this is speculation, but I think it makes sense that the rewards that we have, a lot of that will play out in that future kingdom. Uh, the church will undergo a judgment when we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's not a judgment where we lose uh, our salvation, of course. It's not a judgment where we lose anything. It's a judgment where we're given rewards of, of varying degree. And I think that will play out in the kingdom as well. But we just don't have the level of detail we would sometimes want with that. Yes. Yeah. In Zechariah 13, it's an important passage, Zechariah 12 to 14, really. But in 13, it goes into detail of how two-thirds of Israel will be cut off, and the third will pass through the fire, and they will be refined. And so that third is what remains that God refines. It's that third that will be saved. Yeah. Yep. Well, there's an exact 144,000 that are taken out of Israel who will be like a, uh, a super evangelistic group. Now, is that, does that constitute one-third of Israel? I don't think so. I, don't, um, I think it would be, a third would be much bigger than that. But before that time where two-thirds are cut off, this 144,000 are used to reach the world, which is very interesting in Revelation. Um, when you get to those chapters 6 through 18 that describe a future tribulation that hasn't happened yet, one of the evidences that it hasn't happened yet is you have 144,000 Jews who are reaching the world instead of the church. And in Revelation 14, you have an angel flying overhead proclaiming God's wrath to the world and not the church. You don't have the, uh, the church sending people out as proclaimers of good news with beautiful feet. So there's this future aspect where now Israel comes back into focus in God's program because the, the church isn't mentioned in those chapters. Yes. Yeah, so salvation is the same. Yeah, these, anybody who gets saved during the tribulation, that third that gets saved, they've been chosen before the foundation of the world for that time, for that purpose, and they will be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Good questions. Okay, well, let's turn to Isaiah 19 together real quick. He mentioned Isaiah 19. Uh, I want to look at that in Zechariah 14. <clears throat> As we think about you know, the question, because there's a lot of content, of course, that we've presented to you over the past few months, and even in that video we just watched, a lot of content. And so as you're thinking, um, dispensationalist or not, I think there are a couple of passages that will really reveal that to you when you read them and say, what does this mean? Isaiah 19 is one of those, and let's look at um, 16 to the end. So let's have uh, someone read 16 through 20. Who would read that? Isaiah 19, 16 to 20. Is that you, Logan? Okay. And then 21 to 25. Who would read that? A couple. Got a couple readers involved. Ellie. Okay. So Isaiah 19, 16 to 21 is where we'll start. Ellie, go ahead, 21 to the end there. Thank you. 
All right, so when you read a passage like that, and this one is pretty explicit, talking about some amazing events that, from Isaiah's perspective, of course, were future, that involved national entities, if you were to ask yourself, has this been fulfilled yet in world history? And if so, how? However you answer those, it's kind of going to determine whether or not you are, uh, that's going to guide you in your thinking, am I dispensational or not? So from our perspective, as the pastors who teach at this church, and according to our doctrinal statement, we would say, no, this hasn't happened yet. Using a consistent, literal, grammatical hermeneutic, Egypt means something, Assyria means something, Israel means something. These words have meaning. These words represent actual political, geographical nations. And these uh, sacrifices they're performing, those are real. This worshiping that's happening is real. Uh, Think of verse 19 there. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. That's an actual altar in the actual land of Egypt. Okay, And so we see that as happening in the future. That's, that's going to happen in a future day. There at the end, that last verse that, that Ellie read, I mean, this is just astounding. The Lord saying, blessed is Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. I, I don't know how else to interpret that other than that's going to happen when Egypt and Assyria turn to the Lord and they have this now friendly relationship with Israel that they, of course, haven't traditionally had. And God's going to restore those relationships in the Lord. It's going to happen in Christ. And so um, the other option that you would have would be to take this in an allegorical or metaphorical way, to take some sort of spiritual interpretation. You would have to change the hermeneutic, the interpretive method. And that's just not something that, that I'm going to do. Yeah, right. That's, that's why you'll hear sometimes uh, pe- Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ with another view, who would say that that's talking about the church, that's talking about uh, Christ, that's talking about the first century church, that's talking about the kingdom of Christ playing out over time. You have all these different explanations of what that means, because if the words lose their original meaning, the, wor- the meaning that Isaiah had whenever he wrote that scripture, that prophecy, if the words lose that meaning, then it does become a bit of open season as to what those words mean. Okay. Lenny. Hmm. Well, it kind of is one of those upfront decisions that people have to make, isn't it? It's like, before you read the Bible, you kind of have to decide, how am I going to read this? <laughs> um, and the, the way that people get to a metaphorical interpretation is they begin by reading the New Testament. And in the New Testament, they, they take the, those words literally, consistently, and they say, look, Jesus came and he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came and he initiated the kingdom. So that must mean, you know, fill in the blank. So then they take that conclusion from the New Testament and they go back into the Old Testament and project that view onto the Old Testament where you kind of have to, to ar- arrange things differently in, Ze- in places like Isaiah 19 or Zechariah 14 to get a meaning, a meaning that comports with what you concluded in the New Testament. So that's what's going on in, the, in that moment for someone of a different theological persuasion, and you have to talk to that person about how we build our theology. And it's a philosophical choice. I believe in building my theology progressively through Scripture. Now, are you going to get the gospel that you need to hear in order to be saved in Genesis 1? No. For someone to be saved, I give them John 3, give them uh, Galatians, give them Romans, right? But when we're building our overarching theology of what God is doing in the world, it is a Genesis to Revelation ordeal. And we want to begin following the storyline as God has given it, taking it consistently, literally throughout the, the whole book, and then at the end, see what God has given us with the literal interpreta- interpretation. Yeah, it would certainly be broader than what we would see, yeah. Um, because it's spiritualized. And so anytime something becomes spiritualized rather than literal, that opens the door to more possibilities. Yeah. 
Well, let's go to Zechariah 14 real quick also. That'll be the other passage we look at. Again, having to do with Egypt. Isn't this crazy? Egypt makes another appearance here in Zechariah 14. I think we've looked at this in this class somewhere along the line, but it bears looking at again. Remember, these are two passages that you can go to, Isaiah 19 and Zechariah 14, that will help you determine where you are on this theological debate. Okay, how do you interpret passages like this? So would someone read Zechariah 14, 16 to the end? Verse 16 to the end of the chapter and the book. Mike, you got it? Right, so as you read through the book of Zechariah, I already mentioned Zechariah 13 a few moments ago about the tribulation that Israel will go through. Well, here after that time, you see in verse 16, it says, of the other nations, those that are left, this is what they're going to do. And he uses Egypt as an example. There's going to be a celebration of these feasts, the Feast of Booths, and there are other feasts that will be recognized then. There will be uh, the, all these ceremonial acts performed before the Lord, after a time of great tribulation. And so again, you have to ask yourself, has this happened already? <laughs> and if so, when? How was it fulfilled? Again, we look at something like that and we say, no, that hasn't happened yet. That is yet future. That's going to happen after that future tribulation that Revelation goes into great detail about, but is mentioned throughout the Bible. It's going to happen after that time, and it's going to happen whenever the Lord has his kingdom on the face of the earth and the nations are in submission to the Lord and they're fulfilling what he has commanded. Okay, so uh, another one of those passages. I mean, there are several we could go to and say, okay, how do you interpret this? Uh, several in the Old Testament especially we could go to. But I think these two are especially potent to look at because there's just a lot of stuff there. Like, what do you do? Well, I mean, what do you do with that if it doesn't mean what it says? Uh, that's the difficulty that that I have is trying to make the Feast of Booths mean not the Feast of Booths, or trying to make Egypt mean not Egypt. Uh, I just can't do that. Okay. So there you go. I'll now open it up. Any thoughts or questions on those passages or, or anything? Lenny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to be till then when that is ultimately fulfilled. Right. Yeah. comfortable just glossing over words in the Bible. Uh, and I'm not saying that's what, that's what they do, but I want words to be defined, and I'm not satisfied with the definitions that I get from a more spiritual approach. Yeah, I just, I, I've had a hard time reading some, some commentaries that come from that spiritualizing view and kind of respecting what they say, because it's like, no, wait a second, that's, that can't be right. Like, uh, for instance, um, you guys know that great passage about the, the lion 
uh, or the, the wolf will lie down with the lamb? Well, that is talking about a time of a future kingdom. And so um, what has to happen from a, uh, a view that doesn't take that as future is say that's happening now. How do you say that that's happening now? Well, it has to be an allegory for something, right? Um, and so that basically becomes people who are enemies in the flesh become brothers and sisters in Christ or something like that. That's the kind of direction that they'll go. I, I, I struggle with that. Millennium? Yeah. That's the, the more the post-millennial view, that the world will become Christianized or better and better leading up to the return. Basically, Jesus comes back just to inherit what we've Christianized for him. So, yeah. Mandy? In the passage Yeah. Right. And now it's being used for Egypt and the period in addition. And then you go to the passage in Zechariah and you have these other nations sharing in these rights of passage. Mm -hmm. Spiritual rights that only Israel had participated in before. Yes. So it's a unique experience for anything that has ever happened. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's one of the important, really important points that uh, Dr. Vlock, that Michael Vlock was the guy in that video that he made, was that we don't emphasize Israel's role to the diminishment of anybody else. Uh, the other nations clearly have a role. I mean, they're there, they are mentioned. I mean, even like he, he said in the video, you get to the very end of the Bible in the new earth. So now we're past the millennium even. We're in the new earth. And you still have nations bringing their glory in. Nations are still recognized in the new earth. Uh, God loves diversity. And that is shown not only in himself as he is Father, Son, and Spirit, and the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father. There's diversity within the Godhead. But it's seen also in creation uh, in that there are different kinds of creatures and there are different nations too. And that will extend all the way into our eternal experience with God. That's something you don't think about very often, is it? Uh, especially <laughs> the pop culture view of we're all babies playing harps on clouds versus nations existing in a new creation, in the world, forever and ever, enjoying God. That's pretty cool. Other thoughts or questions? Yeah. Uh, the reaction that I get from these people is that you were taught the dispensational point of view. That's why you're Yeah, that's, obviously that's not a real argument, right? To say, well, you were taught this, that means it's invalid, right? I mean, how terrible. You were taught the gospel growing up, that's why you believe it, so that means it must be wrong. What? Uh, yeah, atheists say the same thing whenever we're evangelizing them. So uh, it, whoever's making that argument in any direction, not valid. So don't make that argument. Bad, bad argument, okay? Logan. Yeah. It's, uh, and I always had a problem with that because, well, you know, what are you going to say about it? Right. But then looking back at the Old Testament, it had it too. Yeah. You know, and people try to do the same thing to it. Mm -hmm. Even reading, starting in Genesis, not knowing the Old Testament, you know, it gets a little fuzzy, but uh, I mean, it's still going to be a little fuzzy. Yeah. I mean, if we had it all figured out, we wouldn't be creatures anymore. We, we become creator. <laughs> yeah, so one thing, obviously, that it's important to remember is that the Bible does use different types of literature styles, right? Is there imagery 
in the Bible? Yes. Is there metaphor in the Bible? Yes. I mean, all, absolutely all that exists. Sadly, what happens though sometimes is people take huge sections and write it off as all metaphor. And what they actually mean by that is you can't understand it, so we have to insert a meaning that we can understand. That's what a lot of people do with Revelation, and it's what a lot of people do with the Old Testament. Because what, which is easier? You tell me. Which is easier? To go through the Old Testament, study all the covenants, study all the prophecies, develop what God has said is going to happen throughout millennia of world history, or to say, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, and all prophecies that are in the Old Testament dissolve in Christ. Well, the second one's a lot easier, isn't it? Now, uh, there are minorities uh, who are in that camp who say everything dissolves in Christ, but a lot of people start going that direction and start lumping a lot of things in there and just saying, well, it's all in Christ, it's all in Christ. And the response that I have is, well, we have to, these words have to mean something, right? And so let's study the word and let's see if, if it already has been fulfilled or not. I mean, I agree that Jesus is central to the whole thing that nothing will be fulfilled apart from Jesus. I agree with that. But when I read a passage like Zechariah 14, or when you get into Ezekiel too, there's a lot in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 39, what happens with Gog and the dead bodies and the valley and the markers where the bones are and all that stuff. You start reading that and you say, well, that hasn't happened yet. And I can't just say that's all metaphor. That's like cheating, right? That's like the, that's uh, an easy way out, but it's really actually a sad way out because you're not heeding what God has said. That's the, that's the caution that I have for those who want to go the metaphorical route for big chunks of Scripture. And it's not just the, the other side of your bedside. There are dispensationalists who mm-hmm. believe in uh, our interpretation too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, we should strive to not be lazy and just make blanket statements, but actually dig in and do the work. Yeah, and I, uh, I want to read to you. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. Revelation 1.3. So those who don't like the book of Revelation or want to just like put it to the side... Revelation 1.3 gives us a promise. It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. There's a promise of blessing there. So don't be afraid of Revelation. Hug it. Give it a kiss. Okay? What else? Got five, ten minutes? Yeah. Hmm, true. Yeah, right. There, and there is a lot of detail, no doubt about that. Yeah. Wow, we've got it all figured out, huh? No, actually, they took him very literally. So scribes and Pharisees expected the Messiah to come and set up that that kingdom that it talks about. Uh, They wanted Jesus, if he was the Messiah, the true Messiah, they wanted him to kill the Romans. uh, This foreign country that's ruling over us, we're Israel for crying out loud. We're God's people. Come establish the kingdom. And so when Jesus was not doing that in his first coming, and that's, of course, what you don't see when you read the Old Testament, is the separation of the two comings. You read passages in Isaiah and and other places where it talks about the first and second coming right next to each other. Yet here we are in the middle of a 2,000-year gap between the two, right? Um, But so they they couldn't see that gap. And so that's why they, of course, ended up yelling, crucify him, because he, in their minds, was a false messiah. He was not fulfilling those prophecies they read about. He was fulfilling Isaiah 53, but they wanted Zechariah 14. Uh, no, not at all. Yeah, how, how would they have taken it too literally? Yeah. Yeah, so you got a variety of factors at play which f- feed into that. One, they didn't believe. So they weren't submitting to the lordship of Christ and his teaching. I mean, how different would it have gone if the Pharisees and scribes would have said, you are Lord, we put our hands over our mouths like Job did at the end of Job, teach us. That's a different, you know, account of the gospels at that point, isn't it? Uh, And as Tyler mentioned, they were blind. Uh, 
the parables were given to uh, show that people are deaf and blind, uh, that hearing they would not hear and seeing they would not see. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. So they were hardened, they were blind, they were not submissive to his lordship. All of that factored into not understanding the program of God. Yes, which isn't a bad thing to pray for, right? I mean, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? We, we should pray that. Um, yet, nevertheless, not our will, but his be done. Lanny? We definitely touched on that a few different times, yeah. What, what specific element? Right, so um, there are similarities and differences. It's like a Venn diagram, right? And if we were to look in the middle to see what the similarities are, specifically Romans chapter 4, he was the man to whom God did not impute iniquity. He was the man whose faith was uh, accredited as righteousness, as Abraham was. He was the one who believed and was counted righteous. Same with us. We believe in Jesus, and uh, we are then cleansed from all unrighteousness by the mercy and grace of God. Difference being, though... We, of course, live on this side of Jesus' work. He lived on the before side. So the content of his faith was necessarily uh, a bit different. He didn't know um, what we know about how Jesus was going to die. And uh, he was used of God amazingly, writing, the Holy One will not see decay, that messianic prophecy. But how much of that did he understand compared to how much we understand? We understand more now. Praise God. We have the New Testament explanation of that. Uh, so there's a, an increase in understanding. Yet what he had at that time was sufficient for genuine faith in what God had given. Uh, and so there's a difference in the amount of information they had, yet it's still the same program of being justified by faith. We, of course, are in the church. He was in Israel. Uh, again, going back to the definition difference between Israel and the church. So David was not a, a church member, and we are not Israelites. That's a difference. Uh, but the salvation is the same. Yeah, oh, and that, that comes with being an Israelite. He was under the law, and we're under grace. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, if he was uh, an Israelite, his, an aspect of his living by faith was to know and obey the 613 commands of the Torah. And that, of course, is a difference from today, too. He did, right. Yeah, Jesus talked about that, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he wasn't saved by keeping the law, but that was an aspect of his living by faith. Yeah, he wasn't justified by keeping the law. That's, the, that's not the reason why the law was given. The law wasn't given for that purpose. But he had, but he had to live by it as a man of faith. Whereas today, we are sanctified by the Spirit, and we have before us a higher standard than the law of Moses, which is Christ-likeness. So, that's a distinction, too. One more thought or question. Logan. No one else is asking anything. You're all right. <clears throat> hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Uh, and it, it's actually lived out in the book of Matthew specifically, but through the Gospels and the life of Jesus, you see that happening where Jesus makes an offer of the kingdom to the Jews, where he comes and he says, here's the kingdom, I'm your Messiah. And, and they reject him. Uh, because, of course, that is uh, the, the plan of God, that the Messiah would be Israel's Messiah. And they rejected him. And it, this is where dispensationalism can often be mischaracterized because some people will say that we say he came to offer his kingdom to Israel and they were going to go right into the kingdom. He was going to kill the Romans if they had only believed. Yet they did not believe and so he went to plan B you. You are plan B in God's kingdom, you Gentile, right? That's the way it kind of gets painted as what we believe, which isn't the case. Uh, we believe with Ephesians 1, that uh, God had predestined all of these things to His glory, that He had laid out, He had foreordained all of these things to happen according to His will. 
now, the way that it plays out in the Gospels is, of course, Jesus going to his own, and his own did not receive him, John chapter 1. But to all who did believe in him, he gave them the right to be sons of God. Uh, the, the Jew does have great privileges. In the book of Romans, uh, Paul asks, what's the advantage of the Jew? It's great in every way. To the Jews belong the covenants, the promises. Uh, he lists a bunch of things in Romans 9 that belong to them. And the Messiah belongs to them, to, to them too. Yet, he's also Savior of the world, and that's why we, we can be saved. That's why the church exists. It's because uh, the, the promise of salvation, the hope of salvation, broadened to include the Gentiles now in this one new man. But all through the Old Testament, you see that the Messiah is going to come for this nation, Israel, and that's why he went to them first. Yeah. Oh. For sure, yeah. Yep. Okay, very good. Well, how about I pray? And uh, we'll be done with this whole series. Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for our time together. Again, thank you for having us be here together tonight. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless our study of your word as we go throughout this week, uh, making time to hear from you and what you've revealed to us in Scripture that we would study well as approved workmen who do not need to be ashamed as we rightly divide your, your word, seeking to interpret rightly uh, for your glory. God, help us in this endeavor that we would understand what it is that you have said and that we would have an accurate picture of what you're doing in the world. Lord, we ask that uh, you would uh, bless us too, not only in knowledge but in love, that nothing that we ever study would just remain head knowledge but that it would have an impact on our lives that we would grow in our love for you and our love for others, that we would grow in humility and servanthood, and that we would be a blessing to those around us as lights of the world and as members of your body. God, help us to serve you well, uh, to honor you in all that we say and do and think. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.